Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Every epidemic is a test of the compassion of a community. People are responding as better people because of COVID, because it's affecting everybody. But with HIV and the way it was affecting people who lived on the outskirts of society, it gave people permission to be horrible. And it made life very, very difficult for people with HIV and for the people who were friends of people with HIV. This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas. It's too early to tell about the long-term impact COVID-19 will have on the world, though of course in the short term, we've already experienced illness and death and social, economic, and political disruption on a massive scale. As the economy starts to reopen, we're already seeing new spikes. COVID could become something unimaginable, but the social distancing and other preventative measures we're taking has kept the disease from spiraling completely out of control. And there's hope that we'll have effective vaccines within the next year or two. In contrast, the AIDS pandemic, which began in 1981, was allowed to spiral out of control. And it was about 15 years from the beginning of the outbreak until the development of effective treatments in the mid-90s. Even now, nearly 40 years later, there is no vaccine. UNAIDS reports that as of the end of 2018, nearly 75 million had been infected with HIV and 32 million had died. Some people have been suggesting that what we're feeling now in the early days of the COVID outbreak must be similar to how it felt at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. But there were crucial differences. In a commentary in the April 2020 edition of Outcasting Overtime, Outcaster Chris said, Imagine how much lower the number of people lost to AIDS might have been if people hadn't hated gay men and had instead recognized AIDS as a worldwide health crisis right from the beginning. And imagine how you, today, dealing with this new coronavirus, would be panicking if COVID were raging in your community, but there was no effective public response. Imagine the sickness and death becoming pervasive among your own friends and family and asking, pleading, screaming for help, but no one listens. No one really cares about the infected, and the government sits on money that should be released for developing a vaccine, or cure, or for caring for those who are sick. Imagine the rage and grief you'd feel as your friends were getting sick and dying, and the rest of the world was ignoring the whole thing. Joining us now to help us understand and not just imagine is Jay Blotcher. Jay is a veteran journalist and activist. He arrived in New York City in 1982. He began writing for the New York Native the leading gay newspaper at the time, and then became associate producer of Our Time, a weekly TV show about LGBT life in New York City, hosted by the activist and historian Vito Russo. Jay joined ACT UP New York in 1987, the year the group was founded. He took part in key demonstrations like the FDA protest in 1988, Stop the Church in 1989, and the demonstration at the National Institutes of Health in 1990. He served as the head of ACT UP's media committee, taking the helm from Michelangelo Signorelli. Most recently, Jay was the editor of Rainbow Warrior, My Life in Color, the memoir of Gilbert Baker, creator of the Rainbow Flag. 
Jay is also a member of the Gilbert Baker Foundation and co-founded Public Impact Media Consultants, a PR firm for progressive groups and individuals. This is part three of a four-part series. Welcome back to Outcasting, Jay. I appreciate the invitation. When we left off on the last edition of Outcasting, we were talking about how people involved with AIDS, as activists or as people with AIDS, came by necessity to know more about the disease than the medical establishment. You mentioned that this changed relationships between patients and their doctors. We've also been talking throughout the series about how AIDS might have played out very differently if it had not initially been concentrated in populations that the general public just didn't like, particularly gay men and intravenous drug users. But once it became clear that HIV could potentially affect the general population, not just these so-called undesirables, how did the public and political responses change? I will tell you that the heterosexual explosion of HIV cases, although we warned about that, never really happened. I don't know why an epidemiologist would have to explain it, but while we warned people that HIV could affect everybody, it seemed to stay mostly in the gay male community and in the communities of color. It did start to spike in uh, women of color because ostensibly they would get it from their men who were sleeping around. It's a very politically uh, touchy scenario because HIV laid bare the problems that communities had sociologically. You know, the fact is that in communities of color, we have drug addiction. I'm not saying it's disproportionate, but it is there. And we also have people who are polyamorous or rather have many sexual partners at once. A guy could have a wife or a girlfriend and he could be going to other people for sex, whether it be men or women. And frankly, that was a uncomfortable truth that the African-American community did not want to address. And unfortunately, the community ignored HIV issues at its own peril for several years. Many lives were lost that didn't have to be lost. But you have to remember that the African-American community is dominated by its religious forces, by its religious leaders, And they did not want to deal with HIV because HIV was about sex and HIV was about drug use and HIV was about sex workers. All the things that they wanted to ignore and pretend were not happening in their community. And it was just a horrific thing that the African-American community was in denial about HIV for so many years and so many lives were lost uh, needlessly. The fact is that you still had people in the in the straight community saying, oh, it's not going to get to us. It's only going to affect those people. You know, it was a sense of otherness. You know, the, the outcasts, the pariahs, the gays, the people of color, the poor people, the sex workers, everybody who mainstream, privileged, white, heterosexual America saw as dispensable commodities. So even though it became clear that anybody could get HIV, 
you still had this magical thinking that HIV was not going to hit certain people. And so while politicians became a little bit more willing to do things for people with HIV and to lobby for funding for various branches of the government that dealt with HIV research, it still never really got better. You know, it got a little bit better when in the late 80s, America learned about Ryan White, a white, straight boy, teenage boy, who had contracted HIV through a blood transfusion. And, you know, there was a particularly egregious logic back then that there were innocent victims of HIV. And those were people who got HIV because of uh, tainted blood. But calling people innocent victims means that America also felt that other people who got HIV because they were gay or because they were drug users or because they were prostitutes or sex workers, those weren't innocent victims. The implication was that they deserved it. So there was a real insidious mentality going on in America. People really washed their hands of certain people. They thought, well, if these people do this sort of behavior, then they deserve what they get. There was a lack of compassion for people with AIDS, and that was a brazen lack of compassion. But along comes Ryan White, and people could find Ryan White's plight as a white, middle-class teenage boy. They could embrace him. You know, and I'm not demeaning Ryan White because he was a great person. He raised awareness. He was he was a real hero. You know, Elton John came to his rescue. They, you know, he was he and Elton John spent time together, and Ryan White normalized the AIDS epidemic for America. But it had to be a straight white boy to be the poster child because everybody else was not considered a good enough American that, you know, we we had to find somebody faultless to garner the compassion that all people with AIDS deserved. But by the mid-1980s, people were generally becoming aware of how HIV was transmitted and the methods for limiting this transmission. So how were these methods applied, and were some of them controversial? We're talking about closing bathhouses, encouraging people to have safer sex, needle exchange programs, and that kind of thing. You know, even though our government now knew modes of transmission, you would think that would wake them up to how to deal with it. But people remain judgmental. The fact is that some people are addicts, and they use needles. And AIDS activists said, well, a way to save people's lives is to provide needle exchange so that they are not using the same needles over and over or sharing needles. And what did the government say? Oh, we're not going to condone addiction. So these people with drug addictions better get off the drugs right away or die. And people who knew the drug world said, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. You have to help them stay alive at the same time that you're trying to help them get off drugs. You can't just say to them, okay, go cold turkey right now. Stop doing IV drugs. And so our government, our federal government put an embargo 
on any organization, like funding any organization that would want to provide needle exchange. It was this punitive, petty, very heartless approach. It was saying, okay, now that we know how how to stop AIDS, everybody better get with the program right away, or we're just going to forget you, and it's tough for you, and you're not following the rules. So this compassion towards people with AIDS was still missing in the United States. There were still sectors of society who told heterosexuals, don't you worry, AIDS is not going to affect you. You just keep doing what you're doing. The church took a very aggressive role in telling America that abstinence was the way to go and saying to you know high school kids yeah just just be abstinent because we are not going to give you condoms condoms are the wrong way to move ahead condoms send the wrong message these religious people felt that you know if we keep condoms from people then they won't have sex well they were having sex anyway condoms would have been lifesavers but these religious organizations were not content to provide their misinformation only to their congregations. They actively went to schools and went to political bodies in towns and cities and on a state level to try to change the rules to squelch any discussion of condoms or AIDS education in the schools. And that was unconscionable. You know, it's one thing if you have narrow-minded, erroneous, misguided ideas about your, you know, through your religion, then you share that only with the people in your church. Why are you trying to spread this misinformation to the public at large? The Catholic Church was a huge offender in this, and I want America to remember that. Before the Catholic Church was brought down because of its child molestation fever, they were doing horrible things and undoing all the the work that needed to be done to save people's lives with proper age education and condom distribution. What they did was a sin. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. As the COVID-19 pandemic unfolds around the world, some people have said, this is what it must have felt like at the onset of AIDS. Our guest is Jay Blotcher, a longtime activist who was involved in the struggle against AIDS in New York City. So how did you and the rest of the gay community cope when your friends were getting sick and dying and the rest of the world didn't care and wasn't doing anything? You know, the epidemic brought out the best in many people, but it brought out the worst in more people. You know, every epidemic is a test of the compassion of a community. And we're seeing that again with COVID now. But I have to say that people are responding as better people because of COVID, because it's affecting everybody. But with HIV and the way it was affecting people who lived on the outskirts of society, it gave people permission to be horrible. 
and it made life very, very difficult for people with HIV and for the people who were friends of people with HIV. When I was in ACT UP, every Monday night meeting would be started with an announcement of the people who had died the week before. And that's when we would find out that somebody who just two weeks ago we had been marching with at a demonstration had gone into the hospital and suddenly died within the week. The casualty numbers were just staggering. And if you thought about it too hard, you would go crazy and just lock yourself in your room and and shut the shades. Our response as members of ACT UP was to fight even harder, to channel that anger and that sadness into the next demonstration. Because if you stopped to think about what you were living through, you would go crazy and probably kill yourself. And so that was our response. For people who did not have ACT UP as their lifesaver, as their focus, I don't know how they dealt with it because the epidemic was all-consuming and depending on what kind of person you were, you could know 20, 30, 40, 50 of your friends who were sick or dying. I talked to people who were probably in their 30s back in the 80s and they would say, oh yeah, I lost about 250 friends. The numbers are unfathomable when you think in terms of your social circle and the people in your life. And to have that social circle virtually all wiped out was day-to-day life for gay people living in the 80s and early 90s. And frankly, that did not change. It got worse in the early 90s. The epidemic reached this new pitch and the number of casualties was horrific. It was not until protease inhibitors. Many people outside of our communities did not worry. They just connected to a really great sense of denial, and that denial saved them. You know, they, you know, out of sight, out of mind, they didn't have to deal with it. And we were left on our own to fight for our own rights as gay people, as people of color, as sex workers, and because nobody was helping us. We were all but forgotten. We were left on our own. It was not until the protease inhibitors came around that things changed. The protease inhibitors were indeed miraculous. They saved a lot of people. They did not save all the people. People talk now of AIDS as manageable. But if you talk to anybody who has to take pills for the rest of his or her life, they will tell you how difficult an existence it is. The fact is that people have been taking protease inhibitors and other type of drugs since the mid-90s, and they were living guinea pigs. We had no data as to what effects, the long-term effects of using these drugs. People were just happy to have a drug that was working and kept taking them. Well, you saw in the late 90s and early 2000s, premature death because of cardiac issues in uh, men who were longtime users of protease inhibitors. You know, obviously there had to be some side effect that wasn't immediately apparent. So there are still problems facing people who, who, yes, their lives were saved by HIV drugs, but they are still facing 
a lot of problems. There is no cure for HIV. The epidemic is still happening, no matter how much people might want to deny that fact. You are seeing a slight uptick in cases of HIV among gay men, where for many years it was going down, and suddenly, you know, a new generation came along and they didn't experience the devastation that I did. They did not bury scores of friends. And they come in to this and they hear about HIV and they hear that there are drugs to handle it. So they get careless and they seroconvert and they get HIV and they say, well, there are drugs for this. And so this vigilance needs to continue. The work for research into a vaccine needs to continue when protease inhibitors came along, this wasn't a signal that everybody could go home and, you know, not worry anymore. It certainly was a great advancement, but it wasn't the end of the problem. And as we see cases happen again, or you see younger people taking PrEP now, and then thinking the PrEP is going to protect them from everything, you're seeing STIs, uh, sexually transmitted infections, start to rise again and give way to super strains of infections because people aren't getting the message that PrEP can protect you from HIV, but it can't protect you from everything. And so there's still a need for condoms, but that topic has gotten lost in all the rhetoric about how amazing PrEP is. We have a younger generation that did not live through the 80s and did not live through the 90s and who were only born in the early 2000s. And when we talk to them about what it was like in the 80s, they look at us as if we're talking about, you know, an imaginary land that they don't have to worry about. How do you think the response to AIDS might have been different if the disease had initially hit another population that wasn't despised, as gay men and IV drug users were? Well, in Larry Kramer's book, Notes from the Holocaust, he points out that in the 1980s, there was a bacteria epidemic that happened in Philadelphia called Legionnaire's disease, so-called because it affected members of the American Legion when they were at some conference. Well, in the days since a few people died of this uh, bacterial breakout or outbreak, there were scores of articles in the newspapers covering this. Why? Because these were white, straight men who were pillars of the community, and everybody demanded answers the disproportionate amount of money and concern that went into, I think there were eight cases initially, but they were the right kind of people, the people who you should care about. So when you look at the disproportionate response to Legionnaire's disease, you can see how this epidemic would have been nipped in the bud early if it had been happening to the right white wealthy people. And that's a galling point. And that's a point that we don't have to worry about with COVID-19 because COVID-19 is not hitting specific demographics only. But I will say that the people of color who are poor, who are being hit by this, are disproportionately dying 
as opposed to the people who have access to proper health care. So once again, an illness is striking people, but the social problems that are already in place are worsening the epidemic, the, in this case, COVID-19. So again, we're faced with a medical system that was not ready to deal with this, already overwhelmed, resources are diminished, costs are already ridiculously high because the Republicans have been trying to destroy Obamacare. We are in a similar situation of being unprepared for COVID-19 the way that we were unprepared for HIV. The only difference is that COVID-19 is much easier to transmit than HIV. So that makes it an even more dire, more dangerous, and more frightening pandemic. To expand on the rate of spread of COVID-19, there are other key biological aspects of the novel coronavirus that are different from those of HIV. First, that the coronavirus has a much shorter incubation period, and second, that the coronavirus isn't as deadly as AIDS was. So how do these biological differences and the viruses themselves affect the ways that the pandemics developed? I think we have seen a greater compassion flow from people towards COVID-19 victims than we would ever have seen in terms of compassion for people with AIDS. Even though COVID-19 is much easier to catch, people can wear their masks and protect themselves. And um, I think, there, as I said before, there seems to be more sympathy and more outreach to people with COVID-19 than there ever was for people with AIDS. COVID-19, you could argue, is a blameless you know, virus, whereas AIDS was a virus that was punctuated by blame and demonization and blame throwing and the the worst of the worst in terms of libelous and negative uh, treatment of its uh, the people who were affected by it. So as we try to find ways to deal with this much more contagious coronavirus, what does our history with AIDS teach us going forward? Our history with AIDS teaches us about coronavirus that when you have a Republican in the White House, it's a deadly, deadly thing because they are not going to respond in a way that's going to help people. They don't believe in big government at a time where big government is really helpful. Um, They only care about their people, not about the rest of the people. And they don't want to throw sufficient money into a medical system that should be more socialized medicine than medicine only for the rich and privileged. So we are seeing, you know, people um, who lived during the early AIDS epidemic, it's a PTSD flashback for them now to see yet another clueless Republican in the White House mishandling a pandemic. That's all the time we have for now. We'll finish up this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Amelie, Sarah 1, Sarah 2, Chris, Lil, Thorne, Justin, Brian, and me, Lucas. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. 
Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.